0: Hello and welcome to the program. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. When it's
1: spring again, I'll bring again tulips from Amsterdam. With a heart that's true, I'll give
0: to you tulips from Amsterdam. I can't wait until the day you fill these eager arms of mine. Like the windmill keeps on turning, that's how my heart keeps on yearning. For the day I know we can share these tulips from Amsterdam. On the panel tonight, Dr Richard Collins, Niall Hatch and Aina nilana Take it away, Aina!
2: With a heart that's true, I'll give to you tulips from Amsterdam. Very good and oh,
0: fantastic. Well, birds are starting to sing, bees are beginning to buzz, and we are noticing that fabled grand stretch in the evenings. Does this mean that spring is already here, or are we still in the grips of winter? To discuss this and more at his home in Malahide, Dr Richard Collins, beside me here in Studio 5 in Donnybrook, Niall Hatch. And you've heard her singing there, and it was a yes from me, (laughs) but a no from the rest of the public. It's Aina and Ilana. So Aina, is it or is it
2: not spring? Ah, come on, let we at this, carry on again. It depends on whether you're doing the Celtic calendar or the meteorological calendar. The Celtic calendar goes sensibly with light. We're halfway between the solstice and the equinox on the 1st of February, so we're halfway between one and the other source the first day of spring. The meteorological people go on temperature, which is rather nuts of them, really, when you think of it in a changing world. When will they have spring? But they say, anyway, the 1st of March is when the weather is warm enough to consider it to be spring but at that rate of going and the way the world is warming up they'll be considered it'll be spring last December if they're not careful.
3: What do you think Niall? Well, for many of our birds, particularly the wintering species, winter is still in full force. All of our ducks and swans and geese and wading birds are still at the wetlands and estuaries and mudflats all around the country. Having said that, some of our songbirds are certainly getting into springtime mode, full of the joys of spring. There's a song thrush has been singing outside my bedroom window for the last couple of weeks now, and it's getting almost like a dawn chorus or the beginnings of it for some of the species. So that's going to ramp up and up over the next few uh, few weeks. So certainly, I think spring is in the air.
1: Richard. Yes, I go along with the light theory. This is not about wildlife, it's not about us, it's about light. The return of the light. Rebirth, resurrection and hope. Hope, the indispensable flame of mental health, said somebody or other, I can't remember who. And the famous phrase of de Foucault: Hope leads us to the end of our lives by an agreeable route."
0: <laughs> Very deep, Richard. Anyway, you know the old saying, one swallow does not a summer make? But does it make spring? Have you noticed any swallows lately, Aina?
2: No, I can't say that I've seen any swallows lately. Not not in February. I would be absolutely amazed if I were to see anything like that. I've heard the great tits going, teacher, teacher, and I've heard the robins bursting themselves singing. So the sap is rising in the trees and young men's thoughts are turning to love. But swallows? No, I have seen no swallows. Not yet anyway.
0: Well, be prepared to be amazed, Dana, because one of our listeners, Eamon Grogan, emailed us on Thursday the 2nd of February to report that he had seen his first swallow of the year in Whitehall in Dublin 9. Now, surely all of our swallows are supposed to be still in Africa at this time of year. So it begs the question, what's going on?
2: Well, maybe it was one that hasn't gone away. You know, it's not, so much, it's not so much that they have come already back from the south of Africa. But in fact, I have heard cases of swallows not actually going away at all during the winter, but staying over. So maybe this is one that managed to hit it lucky. And because it didn't actually go away, it did find enough to survive on if it's still around. So I would put my money. It's one that hasn't gone rather than the first one coming back.
3: This is something that is getting reported on more and more. We're still only seeing a tiny number of swallows present in Ireland for the winter but it used to be an unthinkable occurrence and now it's happening each year. There are a few. And what we're seeing, perhaps even more starkly, is that there are significant numbers of swallows now, not bothering to go as far as Africa, just spending the whole winter in the southern Bray. parts of Spain. Well, not quite in Bray, but in the southern <laughs> parts of Spain and Portugal. I know Bray is where you go on your summer holidays, Derek. But, uh, Indeed. For, <laughs> but for the swallows, uh, yeah, they would only go further than that. But there's many are just going now as far as the south of Iberia rather than all the way to Africa. The vast, vast majority of our swallows are still doing as they always have, heading to southern Africa but some are staying behind. Now, it swings and roundabouts. For for the for the lucky hardy few that stay back or maybe they're foolish, it's been time will tell, they have a big advantage if it pays off for them because they get to be on the prime breeding territory, they don't have to fly such a long distance and undergo the rigours and risks of migration but they're depending on a food source and if there's a sudden cold spell and flying insects suddenly disappear those swallows will die. There's just no way they can survive without a sufficient supply of these flying insects and other vertebrates around and it's worth cautioning as well that, you know, even though we're talking about springtime, usually the coldest months of the year in Ireland, they're not December or January they're February and March and there's very often a cold spell in March before the the summer comes in uh, and that often kills some of these swallows that stay behind.
1: Richard? it's a funny old business life is such a lottery for them particularly if they choose to do the wrong thing it's a lot of luck it's all about the weather the weather might be very mild and they could do very well by staying on the other hand there could be storms and things on the way if they migrate they could run into all kinds of difficulties there so it's a big lottery it's hard to know what to do and they have to choose whichever way they they're going to go so it's a, it's it's a strange world this but that's how it is.
0: That's how it is. Now it is
1: springtime
0: and we talk about spring
3: cleaning at this time of year and it's time to clean out your nest box. It is. It's the perfect time to think of that. When it turns to February, that's when I clean out my own nest box in the garden because you want to have it ready for the breeding season. At the moment, birds are singing. They're starting to get into breeding mode. And this is actually the time of year when cavity nesting species like blue tits and grey tits and so on, when they go prospecting for nest sites. So they're not going to be nesting just at the moment, but they are keeping an eye out for likely real estate in the future. So come April and May, they'll start nesting at that stage. So to clean out the nest boxes, what you need to do is you need to basically open the lid of them or maybe the side panel whatever way it works with that using a rubber glove mm-hmm. take out the nesting material it usually comes out in one piece the reason you wear a glove is that use a face mask as well if you have one and a pair of goggles protect yourself at all costs yes yeah, not to be too alarmist but you're right we should take we should be, be careful because nature isn't sanitised and these nests are usually full of little parasites little, uh, little uh, t- mites and fleas and things like that and ticks um, now these don't pose a, a threat to human health in any big sense they, these are bird, uh, bird parasites but still you don't want them crawling on you and all that so So take out the nest using hand protection and put it in your compost bin or the, or in the brown bin. Um, it is fully biodegradable, of course. And then what I do to, to clean out the box, rather than using any kind of harsh bleaches or chemicals or anything like that, just get a kettle full of boiling water, hot as you can, pour that through the box, coat the inside walls with the hot water and then just let it air dry. And that's enough to kill any bacteria or viruses or any other nasties that might be in the box. Then close it up and just leave it in place. Don't be tempted to put any nesting material inside the nest because what will happen is there's one of two different different scenarios. A pair of blue tits may come along to the nest box and they'll look inside and worst case scenario they'll look in and they'll see oh there's nesting material here someone's beaten us to it there's already a pair of birds nesting in here we go find somewhere else or best case scenario they look in and think there's a nest in here and it's absolutely rubbish let's get rid of this they throw it out and they start again so it's a waste of time so best just to leave the nest box completely empty let us let the birds do their thing and try not to disturb them when they're doing that because when they're building the nest they're still not fully committed to it and they can easily abandon the nest site if, they, if they're think that there's danger nearby and they see us humans as being dangerous so keep a, keep giving them a wide berth and observe from a distance I would say yes do
0: not disturb the birds do what Niall says observe from a distance more details on how to clean them out and other stuff rte.ie forward slash mooney now let's go to a man who knows a lot about nesting birds and birds in the garden I wonder what he's seen if anything at all lately in Dublin 15 Terry Flanagan Yes, I have. I've noticed the blackbirds have paired off in the garden. The two of them are in.
4: And something really, really interesting, Nile might be interested in this. I always throw out apples for them to feed on. And at this time of the year, I've never seen it before, only this year, the male blackbird will always let the female feed first. And when she's finished feeding, then he goes in and feeds. And he won't go near the apples until she has fed. I actually took a, a, a video clip of that. But more interesting, a, a, a starling came into the garden. As the blackbirds were feeding there the blackbird attacked the starling and drove the starling away I actually managed to get the, the clip of video I'll send it in and we can put it up on the website when you get a chance
3: Nile, any thoughts on this Well, yes, because it's the time of year now when thoughts are turning to the mating season and the birds are getting ready to breed and that male blackbird is on his best behaviour. He wants to impress that female. He wants to show that he's considerate and putting her needs first so that she'll be happy to mate with him and raise chicks with him. And he also wants to make sure that she has enough nutrition to actually produce and lay those eggs. So that's what it comes down to. Um, It's kindness to a degree, but actually it's his own self-interest. It's all about passing on his genes to the next generation. And that starling would be a threat to that as well. If that starling gets the food that could go to his female blackbird... Uh, well he doesn't want that to happen so that's why he's behaving like this they get much more territorial and aggressive
4: Yeah it was really interesting to look at it to see the blackbird because you never think of them as being extremely aggressive but he, he actually managed to, to grab the starling and hold the starling on the ground the starling was on its back the, the male blackbird was on top of him and he was pecking at him two or three times before the starling managed to get away and I couldn't believe that I was actually videoing
0: it at the same time Anyway, Terry, you're here today to talk about an extraordinary find and the puns will continue on, I have no doubt, because a few weeks ago I met a gentleman by the name of Vivian Hughes while I was out buying some plants for the garden and he told me a great story and I said, oh, I know just the man to investigate and it's Terry Flanagan. So explain more, please. Well, Derek, as you say, you met Vivian Hughes, and I
4: went out to see him in his house. And he told me of this exciting find he had in the garden, where he found three eggs in total. And these eggs, they were buried in flower pots, and not only were they buried in the flower pots, but they were also covered and hidden. And he wondered how they arrived there, especially since they were unbroken when he found them. So intrigued to find out more, I popped out to his home in Knockline to find out more.
5: I show you. I have the egg here, right, Harry? No, I have it safely hidden in this box. Okay. So you have a So small I have two eggs. Oh, there's a. This is, what a you white egg. Yeah, small white egg. said, well, it's not that small as eggs go for birds. So it looks like it's a big bird or. Duck, to know. me, it looks like a pheasant egg. Ah, you could be very true. Oh, okay. Very true.
4: And and the brown one.
5: The brown one, this big one,
4: is what I thought Maybe a chicken egg. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, that to me looks like a chicken egg, all right. It's yeah. about it's about the size of a chicken egg. It is, isn't it? There's a bit of a smell off them there as well, isn't too. my not great. Yeah. So you found the first egg here in this in, pot here, in that pot, but it was down in the soil. Oh yes, I'd taken a couple of
5: trowelfuls of earth out, right, when I uncovered the egg. Luckily, I didn't break it though, didn't you? Shoved yeah. the trowel into it, but it was terrible it's lying there. And what about the second egg? The That's That white egg. one. The white one which is an odd thing.
4: Right. So we're just moving down the garden, down to one of your sheds here. Yes, this is my, my man's shed, as it were. Was, this was attached to the shed
5: this, railing. Y- yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a,
4: like a little flower pot a little holder. A trough,
5: yeah. Yeah. And it was in that, in the earth, in this that I found in the second egg.
2: Right. I and thought, God, to
5: say how on earth did you get a, a, into that? Have you any ideas what, what's been happening? I asked various people, in fact I did even uh, one of the bird watch people I asked, I just hadn't an idea, except you just thought like I said, it could be a fox or it could be a bird and I said, how would a bird manage to keep one of them and fly you know, with an egg in its beak I thought that's not odd. The only thing I can think of is there's probably a
4: fox. Mm. Well, looking at but the eggs know how first of all into the garden because you'd have to go over the wall. Well, foxes are great climbers. Yeah, but with an egg in your mouth? Yes, I've seen photographs. Haven't seen it myself, but I've actually seen photographs of foxes walking along with an egg in its mouth. Incredible. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So when did this happen?
5: Oh, some time ago. At least two years ago. I've been meaning to do something about it, and then one day recently I was in uh, one of these woody type places and I I met Derek Mooney. I thought, well, I'd have a chance to tell him about it if he listened. And he did very kindly, he listened
4: to me, he said, Oh, we we must do something about that. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. Well, that afternoon he rang me and I'm here now, which is yeah. what, only a couple of days later. And when I'm looking at these eggs here, there's definitely two different type of eggs. To me, one looks like a chicken's egg and another looks like a pheasant egg. Yes. Now, do you have pheasants around? I would have said no, but I did see one out on the green in the front right,
5: on one occasion. Because That's this is very
4: egg. suburban Dublin. It is, yeah,
5: yeah. And there's a big uh, sea over the wall here. Yeah,
4: I can't actually see over the wall, but you tell me that they're building on this estate. They are.
5: I can show you if you wish. But they they, they must be disturbing the soil then, aren't they? Yes, any wildlife that was in there would be gone by now, because they've dug up the whole place. Would there have been pheasants in there, do you think, nesting? It's possible, but there's a fox in there as well, so I doubt if they're going to share the same... Well, that it,
4: it could be exactly that yeah. because the fox may have come across a pheasant's nest yes. and took some of these eggs to cache them because foxes will cache food yeah. for later on. I if, didn't if, know that. Yeah. Uh, pheasants lay eggs on the ground. They have their nest on the ground. Yeah. And they may have... 12, ten, twelve, fifteen eggs mm. in a nest—they're not going to eat mm. them all. So what they might do is they might carry them in here to the garden and bury them in here and in the garden, and come back later and come back later for them. And to me, that's what that first egg looks like. That white egg looks to me like a, a pheasant's egg. Right. But right. let's have a little think now about the second one—the brown egg. That's the chicken one, chicken yeah. egg. I'm sure it's a chicken egg. Well, I, 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 I yeah, I, I would imagine it is too. Is, do any of your neighbours keep chickens? No, no, no. Are you no, sure? Absolutely, yes. Um, maybe somebody a
5: couple of roads away. No, the only other place I could imagine is out on the main road, right. out on Lockland Road, there's an old house over there, which I at one stage thought it may have sort a sort of farmland. Now, uh, there may be chickens over there,
4: I don't know for sure, but it looks like there could be. Yeah, the first thing I was thinking about before we even think about a chicken farm, would would someone be playing a practical joke on you?
5: Oh, I thought of that because I have three girls, and they're good, smashing fun, and they would do that sort of thing, but none of them were here.
4: Yeah, at the time, you know, and I did check it out, but uh, no. The egg here, this what we think is a chicken egg, it's it's almost decaying. When it was fresh, when you came across it first. Was there a date stamp on it? No, absolutely not. I did check for that. Right. So it, it didn't take it for a stealer from his shop, anyway. <laughs> no. Have you seen foxes in the garden then?
5: Not in my garden. I've seen them up on the wall here. Mm. Uh, I've seen them walking on that wall. So, it's, as you say, it's easy for them to jump down in here. But mind you, with a leg in it, it's amazing. Mm. But uh, yes, I've seen foxes out the front as well.
4: They will come into gardens, and they're excellent. Well, climbers. I've seen results uh, in the poo right. in the garden. And I'm just looking here. You must have twenty or thirty potted plants here yes, in the garden. At least, so, yeah. So yeah. there's plenty of places for a fox to bury an egg. Yeah. Well, I, I'd
5: say in the smaller pots, it would be rather difficult. is pause yeah. paused. I to dig out the earth and put the egg in, and then put it back yeah. the earth. So be the larger pots that. I, I, do to that, all right, and that's what has happened. And just for the white egg, the small white egg in this trough in that was top, here. Yeah,
4: I mean that. I would have thought it'd be difficult for a fox to do that. Have you seen any disturbance on any of the other pots? forgetting no. about eggs. No, I haven't. You didn't see anything dug no. up on those pots. No, because sometimes foxes may dig up pots because they can smell the organic material that's oh yes, in it. You yeah. know, the fertilizer yeah, or bone meal yeah, that yeah. might be in it, and it might cause them to dig them up. No, the only place, I
5: think, in the flower bed there. Yeah. I haven't dug that up there. There could possibly be eggs in
4: that. So in total, how many eggs have you come across in the garden? Three. Three. Where's the third one? Uh, gone. Well, what happened to that? Uh, it broke. It broke, right.
5: It broke itself.
4: Right. What about your neighbours? Have any of them come across no. eggs in their garden? No. Maybe the fox is leaving them here for you for your breakfast in the morning. No, it? a good idea. So how do you feel then about this fox, if it is a fox, leaving... Oh food in your garden. I have no
5: problem with that. I'm just amazed. I like fox. I like to see the fox. I like, I look, look out for him every night because he rambles around the green outside and it's, there's a neighbour down the way who I know feeds him and he comes at a certain time every night to get
4: his little dinner. His takeaway as it were. So do you do have foxes in the oh, yes, area and, and you're happy to have them here. Oh yes, yes. And yeah. if they're burying eggs, well and good. Well and good,
5: yeah. Yeah. And he can use my garden anytime. It's not he doesn't leave his mess here as well.
4: That was Vivian in Knockline. But, Derek, you know Morphy's Law mm-hmm. that can go wrong will go wrong <laughs> and when, when I think of Morphy's Law the first thing I think of is buses coming in threes you wait all day for a bus and then three of them come together They're well, like bananas They are indeed something similar here because we got an email in from Maggie Moynan who lives in Clondalkin, yeah. and she has a similar but not exactly the same occurrence happening oh in her garden Again intrigued I had to pay her a visit also to see what was happening there
6: now, Terry, over here is where I found it, right. next to my rose bush, which is about a meter from my patio door. I was setting some snowdrops, as you can see.
4: So, what you have here is you have some soil, yeah, and it's it
6: was covered by leaves, right? And as I put my trowel into the soil, about an inch into the ground, I noticed yellow fluid. Right. And that yellow flute surprised me, and I thought, there's no pipe along here. I uh, was quite alarmed initially by the yellow flute. And then I thought, on further investigating, I discovered a shell with a small little feather on it, a normal hens brown egg. And I thought, oh my God, this is a bad omen, because in Irish folklore, if you find eggs in your garden, it's a sign that someone you know, is doing you bad or meaning you to be unwell. And then I realised it was actually not on the ground, it was actually buried. So there is a difference there. Now, but
4: why were you at the ground, disturbing the ground the first I place? was setting this
6: snowdrops.
4: Oh, okay, so this was just before Christmas.
6: Just before, just month of December, so two or three weeks before Christmas. Mm-hmm. But the soil was completely untouched. No, was no clue when I started. And I do have cats from next door that come into my garden. But there was nothing to say that it was disturbed or anything like that so it was perfect
4: so whatever happened here someone or something yeah. came into the garden dug up the soil yeah. laid the egg in the soil yeah. covered the egg again in such a way that you didn't even notice it
6: exactly which was quite surprising and then i was thinking we do have foxes locally that come into this area and i was thinking it had to be one of them or i'm interested to know what you think
4: right have you seen foxes in the garden
6: Uh, Not in the garden, no,
4: Mm. but passing
6: in front of my door and passing the area.
4: That's your front door. Yeah. And you have a side passage here. We just have a look here at the side passage and at the top of the side passage, you have a door. Yes. Now you might think a fox wouldn't be able to get over that.
6: I did actually. I thought with an egg in his mouth, how could he possibly
4: jump that high? Because the
6: door is about six to seven feet high. Yeah. Well, foxes,
4: they'll have no difficulty whatsoever in scaling a door something okay, like that that's int- so let's move back over then to the okay. flower bed where you found this egg and as you say it's literally only a metre from your back door
6: yeah I think it's interesting to find that a fox could actually we'll say allegedly come and bury an egg mm-hmm. so close to the door but I think he was a clever fox as well because I have cats that come into my garden but they only come within two metres the other side so he chose choose a spot that was going to be safe in my estimation so i would say fair deuce to him <laughs> he's a clever lad are there
4: squirrels in the area
6: no not to my knowledge Lots of squirrels in the park and i do live i suppose about half a mile right. at the most
4: and what about a large crow or something a rook or a raven that might have brought it in
6: i haven't seen anything apart from starlings and magpies and pigeons they would be the ones who would frequent the garden mm-hmm. i haven't seen any
4: to me it looks like a fox all right but I'm surprised that you haven't seen it because I see that you have uh, security lights in the garden here.
6: Uh, I have, but he obviously comes in the middle of the night when I'm asleep. (laughs) So he's a clever fox. But the times I have noticed them passing would be about two or three o'clock in the morning. So it's not early in the evening or it's not early in the morning.
4: Has there only been just the one egg?
6: Yes, unfortunately. Mm. And I, Now that I haven't dug, but maybe when I discover, and I'm setting more plants now for the spring, I might discover some more.
4: But you have more
6: snowdrops yeah. here as well, yeah.
4: because the spot where you found the egg is where there is a bunch of snowdrops. I also see some other bunches of snowdrops. When you were putting those in, didn't notice anything, no?
6: No, no.
4: So it's a mystery to you. It's a
6: mystery, exactly, it is. One I hope you'll solve. <laughs>
0: So, two mysteries, Terry. Vivian's mystery and Maggie's mystery. What did you do? Yeah, isn't this an extraordinary situation? Oh, where stop. we got <laughs> Two
4: examples of buried eggs in gardens. And still not sure of who the culprit might be, I then headed off to UCD and I met up with behavioural ecologist Holly English to see if she could shed some light on these exceptional events. <laughs>
7: Okay, let's have a look inside here.
4: Now, you have to be gentle.
7: Okay, <laughs> let's have a look. Okay, so I'm seeing a chicken egg. Yeah, and, and the far side. On the far side, this looks more like a pheasant's egg. Yeah. So we've got two eggs. They're dirty. <laughs> they yes. look like they've come out of somewhere. Well, I can
4: tell you exactly where they've come out of. They've come out of flower pots okay. in a garden. They were buried mm-hmm. in different flower pots Great. and covered up again. I'm just wondering, how could they have gotten there?
7: Well, especially if they're in a flower pot, it could easily have been our friend, the urban fox. So foxes are what we'd call a generalist. They eat all sorts of things, um, including eggs. Mm. Um, So eggs are a fantastic food item because they're easy to catch. It's easier than catching a mouse, but they're still a really great source of protein. And if you've got lots of eggs or you've had lots of food on a given day, they're quite easy to hide away and come back the next night or night after if you think you might be hungry then. You've already had your lot.
4: Uh, and do foxes, do they cache food a lot?
7: They do. It'll be a very natural behaviour for a fox. It's something we see in them a lot. To
4: me, the idea of being able to take an egg, to be able to put it in its mouth, to be able to carry it, in some cases across ditches, across fences, across gates, and then get to somewhere like a garden and plant it or bury it Without damaging, is that common?
7: Yeah, actually eggs would be one of the most popular items for foxes to catch. Again, because they are such a good source of food and they can be stored quite well. I know we think of eggs as something that perish quite quickly. But for a fox, you've got all this lovely protein goo inside a nice shell, which is holding it all for you. So you can bury that quite easily. So the other thing that they'd often catch actually are, are bones. Um, so these are things that they'll hide and they'll store away and they can come back to them later. Now, how um, do
4: they remember where they've actually buried them?
7: Well, there's different kind of types of strategies that animals have when they cache things generally. So some animals would just make one big kind of, it would be called a, a larder where they say, right, I'm going to put everything in here. And sometimes foxes will keep food items in their own den. So that's nice, it's handy, it's on hand. But what foxes usually do, they do scatter caches. So the idea is that you've got lots of different food items hidden away in different places. So if someone comes along and raids one of your caches, it's okay, you've got another one somewhere else. Usually we would see this more in kind of animals that would be quite clever. So our foxes are kind of famous for being clever, aren't they? So they they can remember several different locations where they've hidden something. But they do forget sometimes as well. So you might find an egg that's been buried somewhere and it looks like it's been there a long time. They might have forgotten one.
4: Well, that's what seems to have happened here because in our case, there have been four eggs discovered. Okay, okay. Three of them in one garden and Mm -hmm. one of them in another garden. And they're in separate parts of the garden. They're not exactly together, but they're a couple of metres, five, ten metres apart. Okay. What I'm curious is, when the fox comes back, is it by sight that he recognises the spot that he has buried the egg? Or is it by scent?
7: They do have quite a good spatial memory. So we think they are good at coming back and finding the same spot again. Um, So what they do
4: is they use clues that are in the garden, maybe that tree that's there or the line or the dog's dish or something.
7: Absolutely. So they they do recognize landmarks in their environment. And of course, especially if an egg has been there for a few days or longer, we will certainly smell it ourselves. Yes, there
4: there is a bit of a a smell (laughs) of that. So they will use the smell then as well, because Mm -hmm. dogs or foxes, they have a great sense of smell.
7: Yes, much more powerful. Mm-hmm. and our own so while we are very visual ourselves and how we navigate the world any member of the dog family their nose is really the primary um, mm-hmm. sensory organ that they're using.
4: As a behavioural ecologist tell us a little bit about Fox life in a City.
7: So I'm part of a team in UCD and we're working with Dublin City Council and funded under the Dublin City Biodiversity Action Plan and we're trying to learn a little bit more about fox behaviour in our cities in Dublin in particular and really were interested in their movements and in their feeding behaviour. I often have a camera trap set up in my own garden, so I see a lot of comings and goings. And if people are thinking there could be foxes in their gardens and they want to see if they're caching things and what they're caching, um, it could be well worth looking into camera traps, because a lot of them are very affordable now. But uh, I've seen them coming through the garden with sliced pan and bread rolls quite often, so clearly people are throwing them out to them somewhere and a lot of them because they are starting to catch those usually a cache would be something that's very valuable that you can come back to and it won't rot but uh, i think there's an abundance of bread being given to foxes i've also seen a hiking boot brought through this obviously wasn't a food item but they will uh, play with toys that they find and stuff as well i've seen dog toys i found the matching hiking boot about two weeks later that was brought mm-hmm. through and uh, a couple of goalkeeper gloves as well
4: <laughs> and what do you say about these two eggs here
7: I think. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the person that found them because they are stinking up a bit now. But, so uh, <laughs> it's time for them to go in the bin, I think, is it? I think maybe we can get rid of these ones and I think our contents, our lovely gooey contents are all gone so they're not much good to the foxes now either. But I'm sure there's plenty of other eggs and flower pots around Dublin and the rest of the country.
0: Thank you very much indeed,
3: Terry Flanagan. But there you go eggs being buried all around the place in Hatch yes obviously not a good strategy for any Irish birds that want to hatch the eggs but it is is—it is something I, I've come across in terms of reptiles and so on too they do bury their eggs quite a bit and there's some birds in the world that deliberately bury their eggs under these big mounds of rotting vegetation so they can control the, the temperature and the heat these brush chickens and Mali fell from Australia brush well. chickens yes uh, or brush turkeys they're sometimes called um, they're, they're um, Australian and Papua New Guinea uh, birds which actually make these huge mounds of vegetation and that then decays and generates all of this heat so rather than have to incubate the eggs themselves with their own body heat they use the rotting vegetation to do mm. that and they adjust the temperature by taking vegetation off or putting it on and opening up little air chambers and that's how the eggs So happen.
0: can they determine whether or not they're going to have male or female offspring as in the case of alligators? I don't Because alligators so. do a very similar thing.
3: They do. I don't believe so although I think there's some more research being done into that but with, with, with reptiles their biology is quite different uh, even down to the fact that their eggs have much softer shells than those of birds but certainly it's, it's it's uh, certainly something that seems to have evolved independently in different parts of the animal kingdom where uh, animals use the ground and use heat there to incubate their eggs for them. Well, it is very interesting, I must say. Now, you're familiar with Harper's Island Wetland Reserve in Cork Harbour Nile. Oh, very much so. One of my favourite places. It's a great spot, particularly at this time of year. It's full of those black-tailed godwits from Iceland and we have loads of widgeon there. Great for kingfishers, all sorts of birds. Fantastic place. Do you
0: know what was there before the wetland reserve?
3: Ooh, I can't, can't say I do. No, I'm sorry.
0: And more accurately, do you know what was there before the water formed the estuary? We're going way back then, I way, think. Way, way back. I don't. No, sorry. Well, we're about to find out. Let's go now to Cork and say
8: hello to Jim Wilson. Jim. <laughs> well, thanks, Derek. I'm here with Professor Robert Devoy. He's a professor of physical geography from University College Cork. And I've come to pick his brains about the estuaries on which all our lovely wetland birds survive. And there appears to be a lot more going on or has gone on below the surface of our wetlands than you might actually think. Robert, thanks for giving me your time. And uh, I think the first question is, when we look out on an estuary like Cork Harbour, where we are at the moment, has it always been like that?
9: No, it hasn't. (laughs) There's change and change. I suppose a a basic point about all coasts is by definition they change Uh, and over 10,000 years one would see huge changes in the position of our estuaries, uh, the shape of them and of course all coastal lands similarly would have changed.
8: And why 10,000 years?
9: Why did you pick that figure? 10,000 years, good question, uh, because that's really taken as the benchmark of the ending of the last glacial stage when sea levels were really low, uh, below the present-day shorelines. And they would, around our island, uh, have been around 60 to 70 metres 10,000 years ago beneath where they are today
8: 60 or 70 so meters had
9: 60 meters oh, of goodness. sea level rise uh, across our continental shells... to our present day shoreline
8: so i mean with climate change and the, the you know the talk about the sea levels rising <laughs> 60 to 70 meters is like you know a phenomenal amount and so It's probably very appropriate that we're discussing the history of sea level and and, and how climate has affected that as well. If we want to learn about it, what is the best way of going about learning about the past, about what a coastline was like? How would you you go about it?
9: The point that you made a moment ago about Into the Future with Climate Change is that we could be looking at many metres more sea level rise, and again, of course, major changes to all coasts, but particularly estuaries where they are already flooded. They are the margins of our present-day shorelines, and they continue to receive water every day. Mm -hmm. So they're part of that semi-waterland, that semi-terrestrial waterland environment that, that we have. And they're going to change even more as those sea level signals come in from the melting of Greenland and the melting of the southern Antarctic uh, ice sheets on into the future. So we could see many more. Um, if you press me, I can tell you how many more meters, but then I've got into trouble about that in the past. Um, but certainly, we will have sea level rise. Right. So, how we learn, coming back to that question, is much more. I think yes. Let's look at the past. Let's look at how our sediments have built up within the estuaries, within to to create our wetlands, um, and that is part of a, a part of. Um, sedimentological science uh, geomorphological science the study of the shape and form of the earth um, where we're looking at paleo-environmental reconstructions
8: and and if you were to put that into layman's terms paleo-environmental reconstructions very simply just
9: ancient environments which we build up again we reconstruct them from the sediment record Every time a tide comes in, Mm -hmm. it brings sediments with it, which is ground-down rock material from our outer coastal areas or the offshore shelf areas. So as a
8: result of um, wave action and things like that? Wave action,
9: rivers coming in from the land, of course, bring sediments from the land, Mm -hmm. ground-down rock material from the land, Mm -hmm. um, which goes out onto the continental shelf. Mm -hmm. But for a period of time, that's where our estuaries are important, that sediment takes a rest. It stops in the estuary and it settles to the bottom of the estuary, and then along comes a storm or a flood from the landward side, and some of that sediment gets moved on again. Okay. Or we get a bigger sea level change, and so the sediment is eroded and moved again to a new location. So the sediments have a record of where they've come from and where they're going to. So that's the environmental bit, is looking at particularly, of course, the the past stored record. Before change happens, everything is zeroed and you move to the next piece of record. But there are some places, like our estuaries, where there are long records which are very quiet. They don't change um, dramatically and they can contain long records before a big swing, such as a big sea level change happens and it's all eroded out. So we can find those records um, of sediment build-up then we can say, okay, for the last 10,000 years, the pattern of change has been this.
8: Would the predictions for the future be based on or drawn from the experience of studying the past?
9: Yes, that's, and that's really the connection to the interest in looking what will happen in the future from mathematical modelling of present-day processes, which are, are the basis for our uh, projection models, Um, but in order to calibrate, to tune those models, and check that they are correct, we need evidence of what happened in the past, and that's the classic connection. The past records provide the basis for interpreting the future projections.
8: I did read somewhere the reason why all these sediments from the rivers and the sea end up on the bottom of the the water in a harbour or the estuary or that? Mm. Is there something to do with the fresh meeting the salt? Is there some sort of chemical, physical reason why it ends up there?
9: Yes, there are. Um, All of those physical, chemical reasons come together to cause the sediment to drop to the bottom and stay there for as long as it It's able to Mm -hmm. uh, until some disturbing like current action or tidal action or wave action will disturb it. So that process of chemical change where particles club together called flocculation, Mm -hmm. lovely word, Yes, um, that happens because of chemical change with the salt in the water, changing salinity in an estuary of course, from highly saline to lower saline causes different flocculation rates. The size of the particles, of course, the heavier the particle, the bigger the particle, the faster it falls to the bottom. so the physical chemical uh, temperature parameters, all of those change the rate at which sedimentation takes place,
8: right, so it varies from place to place, so when i 'm out studying the invertebrates or, or the crustaceans in in a mud flat mm. and, and I stick my boot and I go down you know you know half a meter or whatever, mm. might that have taken. Hundreds or, or, or tens of years to, for that half metre of mud? It depends where you are. OK.
9: If you're in Tralee, uh, for example, where there is a lot of Spartina, uh, which you, you'd be familiar with, a um, uh, core grass uh, yes. is, is extensively uh, building out on, into, in, into the wetland areas, then it traps sediment around the base of those grasses. There are lots of grasses that do this, but Spartina is very aggressive. Uh, and so the rate of build-up, for example, around the Tralee Bay areas, is is quite large. Um, so you're looking at ten, fifteen centimeters per year. Wow! So your boot, of course, your yeah. leg may be about thirty centimeters yeah. yeah. to the boot. Yeah. Um, so it could be only a couple of years, but if you go to other places with much slower rates, um, then you could be looking at ten, twenty, thirty, forty years. Okay.
8: So now we're we're going to talk about the work uh, that has been done and the proposed work to be done at Harpers Island Wetlands Nature Reserve, mm. Mm. which uh, some of our listeners uh, will be familiar with. We've been talking about the birds and the wildlife that are out there on mm. top of the wetland. And you might give us a little bit of a, a summary of what you've done so far and what you mm. hope to do and, and wh- why the interest in somewhere like harper's island which of course has an area that had a seawall put around it and it, you're quite excited about that it appears as if it, it's an opportunity to study the mm. history of the estuary where you might as easily got a chance yes it's, it's a,
9: a spot along the south coast where people really haven't spent much time um, examining that that ancient, even historical history, let alone the ancient history, going back to that 10,000 years. There's been some work, but not a huge amount of work. When I first came to the department here in in UCC, um, then Cork Harbour was the first place I went to. And that was the work in the early, late 1970s, early 80s. And there hasn't been a huge amount of work on the Holocene sequences um, since which I, Holocene meaning which, sorry Holocene means that post-glacial period since 10, approximately 10,000 years ago um, there's been a little bit but not a huge amount so Harper's Island the opportunity to, to do some um, deep excavations there rather like the, the tunnel excavations for the Jack Lynch tunnel which I remember doing and sampling um, and uh, those monolith tins are still in our cold store which <laughs> There are so many different things to do, we didn't get time to do much with it. But this section in Harper's Iadon provides a good opportunity to revisit that um, post-glacial story.
8: Right. So we're looking at the story of the estuary since, uh, as you explained at the start, uh, roughly 10,000 years ago, which was when really the last ice age started Mm. to uh, recede and and, and
9: Uh, come in. From that that earlier work, we do have good indication that around 8,000 years ago, uh, the sea level as intertidal areas were around about minus 15 metres below our present day shoreline. Eight thousand to eight thousand five hundred years ago
8: so a high tide eight thousand years ago would have been about 15 meters lower, lower than what it is now yes exactly that's 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 quite so. again that, that's amazing uh, so. I know. Uh, For geology and and geography, these thousands and tens of thousands and millions of years seem much Mm. shorter to you than to the ordinary uh, everyday person where that's a long time ago and that's Mm. a lot of time. But of course, Mm. when you add it up, it it builds a way up along. Mm. So you're down in Harpers Island and you you have this opportunity to peer into the dim distant past Mm. of the estuary and find out all about uh, how it got to where it is now.
9: Yes, and it it will provide a way to look at that future picture uh, Mm -hmm. by understanding the rate at which change can happen, that balance between the build-up of sediments, which we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. and the addition of water into the oceans, Mm -hmm. and the deepening of the water column Mm -hmm. as sea level rises. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's been going on all the time through in a recent geological time the last 10,000 years and so understanding the rate at which it happens the patterns of change that result can can be exposed from looking at these past records okay. in cork harbor it's particularly significant because the changes of sea level have been recorded there for At least 350,000 years. We have interglacial records, which almost nowhere else in northwest Europe has. Those have been investigated, which was a distraction from the Jack Lynch tunnel, (laughs) um, where we had much deeper boreholes that took us down to, at Roach's Point, for example, below minus 30 metres, where we have records of that ancient um, last interglacial. In other words, we had the last glaciation and before that we had a long warm phase Mm -hmm. which is like our present-day climate and that's called an interglacial. So we have preserved in Cork Harbour probably, although we can argue about the dating, um, probably the last interglacial is recorded there and it's almost a complete sequence from that early flooding in as the ice-melted sea-level rose and the build-up of the wetlands of the last interglacial over 115,000 years ago. So it's exciting now to sort of bring the whole story up to the present day by looking at places like Harper's Island in Cork Harbour.
8: I was away working uh, during the summer and I was deep green with envy when I saw the photographs of you. You're, you're down in a, a huge hole out on the wetlands. These are the test pits mm. that you were digging up just to get a, a first idea of, of what, what it was like. So can you describe roughly what you' found just by looking at uh, those test pits and going you know yep. four meters down into, into the ground and then what you would hope to do going forward? Yeah.
9: I mean, we had a great opportunity of being able to bring uh, a JCB, um, a digger, down onto site in order to, to uh, develop uh, uh, wading areas for, for birds. And, and um, that was the, the focus of getting digging going on. Uh, and we could, of course, then dig much deeper. So we started at the contemporary, the modern day shoreline on Harper's Island, which was a very shallow hole in the ground, a pit. These things are always called by a technical name. Well, this is a very simple technical name. It's a pit. So we had four pits that went from the the present day shoreline out into the deep estuary area. Um, And so the first one was around about a metre deep, going from the modern day beach gravels to the old glacial gravels that underlie the whole site of the offshore areas of Harpers Island, um, which is the modern-day wetland area?
8: Right. Which is which is the area we were talking about? Just to get a vision for the the listeners, that's inside the sea wall. Yes. So, like, you didn't have yes. to put on scuba gear no. or go out in the boat no. because the beauty of it was the whole area had been enclosed. Had been reclaimed. And, and there's plants yes. and everything on top. Yes. So, yes. yeah. Yes. It, and
9: it, the birds have their, their habitat that, uh, That's and, right. And their waiting areas yeah. there. But
8: so you were using that opportunity to be able to get the JCB in there. Yep. Uh, so it made it much easier to do. Yes. And then you dig down and you find. Found some interesting
9: in, things? Yeah, into our pit too, which was around 30 metres from the shoreline. Um, we discovered uh, a very thick um, peat, uh, a, a grass base peat initially. And then as we go deeper, the peat becomes a wood base peat. And then we're into the glacial gravels underneath. So what that peat shows us is that um, before sea level overtook the site and developed the, the modern-day estuary, there was a, a woodland forest, a, a shrubby woodland, um, dominated by hazel and oak and willow. Uh, those sorts of trees, which are very common today, they started to grow as the water table rose
8: mm-hmm.
9: under rising sea level. And that's the first indication. The sea levels rise Starts the water, the freshwater table to to rise as well, which allows plants to grow in profusion. And so we had a a really quite a thick um, forest, Mm -hmm. uh, which would have become rapidly a swampland. As as the sea level rose. As the sea level rose. And it was still um, freshwater uh, Mm -hmm. before the sea level actually overtook the whole site and developed uh, a marine environment. And, of course, that was the end of the woodland peat at that stage. But the indication that that process was happening is the change from that wood peat uh, to the grass peat, dominated by sedges and grasses. And these tall, they're called reeds, but it's Phragmites, which you find all the way around our coastlines, Phragmites australis. What would you like to do next? Oh dear, that was the, that's a, that's an Aladdin's cave question. What wouldn't we like to yeah. do? You know,
8: Christmas is just gone, so if you had to <laughs> yes. get in a late present uh, for from Santa, what what would you what would you be? Asking well, the first
9: thing that? is we we will have submitted before just around about now um, that wood peat and the grass sage peats uh, for radiocarbon dating. So the first thing would be some some good dates coming back from our radiocarbon laboratory, um, and I would. Suspect that we're looking at something around about four and a half thousand years old uh, of that wood peat, just mm-hmm. judging from the knowledge of the, the the layers around core carbon that that, that we do have. Mm-hmm. Um, but above that, uh, as we go into the uh, above peat areas, as the sea flooded in across that swampland area um, where alder and oak would have been growing, mm-hmm. uh, the the estuary developed and it would have been a brackish water, not probably full marine.
8: So um, half fresh, so, half salt. Yes, yeah, exactly,
9: yeah. and and increasing salt as yeah. the sea level continued to rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and into that series of clay and silt building up, uh, there would have been times when either because the sedimentation was so fast that uh, plants could migrate back into the area and build up salt marsh areas, uh, and sometimes the the sedimentation was fast enough to develop further on from salt marsh into that sort of uh, Phragmites reed swamp uh, mm-hmm. again. And so it would have been sort of a semi-terrestrial to waterland environment, but not fully flooded all the time. So we have indications above those in Pit 2 and in Pit 3, in, deeper into the Harpers Island area, of these interleavings of times when either because sediments build up fast or that sea was rising fast enough to overtake uh, that rate of sedimentation. Mm -hmm. And so you had deeper water conditions developing and then sea level paused for a period of time. The rise paused uh, and sedimentation could catch up again. And you had land, as it were, water land, wetland building up in in these areas so we have these interleavings of organics which provide of course basis for carbon dating so we can see that pattern just from the stratigraphy there's another word we haven't used up to now but the stratigraphy simply means this the sequence of sediment layers Mm -hmm. from the past to the present
8: Mm -hmm. So that's a bit like the, the rings in a tree. You're, yes. you're, you're kind of you can tell a lot from studying those layers, just, those layers. Just those layers. Well, coming back to your
9: question about yeah. what else would we like to yes. do, then looking at the silt and the clay and the peat, uh, we can look at the microfossils contained within um, those sedimentary layers, from the peat through to the silts and clays, and uh, we can look at the pollen, which gives us the vegetation. That's one thing we will do for our 2023. And students from UCC, I'm sure, will be doing this uh, as part of their master's course in in coastal environments and management in UCC there in geography. Um, Also then looking at the water story. For example, we can look at the shells that are recorded in... And you can see the macrofossils of shells like Scribicularia, uh, very, very visible in the silts and clays of of the Harper's Island sequence. Um, And then the microfossils that you can't see so easily with a naked eye, but you can under a microscope. So to look at different sorts of shells, to look at Foraminifera, which are very small, less than 500 uh, microns Mm -hmm. in size... So half tiny. a, a millimetre, tiny, mm-hmm. tiny. Uh, and pollen, as I said, would be even smaller than that. But the waterland story would be more from diatoms. Okay. So looking at the diatoms, which are plants, um, unicellular simple algae that are in the water column, mm-hmm. and you'd find them in wherever there's water, you will find diatoms on the land, in the oceans, wherever. And that provides us a good signal of the salinity change. So we can see the pattern of marine to fresh water recorded in that Harpers Island sequence. And that tells us something about the pattern of sea level change, which brings us back to thinking and understanding how the future pattern under continuing rises of sea level will take place.
8: Well... Robert, (laughs) I I think I'll never look at an estuary uh, around Ireland in the same way ever again. It's it's just mind-blowing. And even thinking about, you're talking about the microfossils and the macro fossils. you know, what sort of wildlife, what sort of birds and everything would have been around. And obviously it it changed over time. And I'm just so excited that right on our doorstep, we have this resource that we can now tap into uh, and something that can teach us about our past, but also about the future of our coastal wetlands and estuaries. We look forward to uh, the work and I hope your wishes come true from what you want to do down in Harpers Island. And we'll, we'll come back at a later time mm-hmm. and uh, find out how you're doing. And I know that your colleague, Aaron Lim, in the Geography Department is very interested as well. And uh, we'll be, will be doing a lot of work uh, along with yourself and the department. A year's th- time. Th- th- yes. Listen, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you Thank very you.
0: much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim and Robert Devoy at University College Cork. That's all we have time for today. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. My thanks to Ayn and Helena, Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan, and Niall Hatch. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlif Holland, and our researcher is John Bella Riley. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Email
9: mooney at rte.ie.